The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can reach them now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165, and they will return your call. Don't forget their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all today. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, everyone. So lots of chatter, obviously, of late uh, in regard to the U.S. election as it gets closer on uh, November 3rd. We, we certainly know how uh, Donald Trump can certainly say certain things that might uh, send the stock market one direction or the other. How has uh, the lead-up to the U.S. election, how has that affected markets? Well, the lead-up to it, that's a great question, Scott, and the lead-up to it is really bouncy. You know, you're getting days like uh, minus 400 points one day and up 400 or 300 the next day. And, again, there's this uncertainty about the election. And that's kind of what we, um, Andy and I talked about a few weeks back uh, when we were citing Dr. Jeremy Siegel. He said you probably won't see a whole lot of change overall between now and the election, but it will be bouncy. There will be some volatility. And... You know, who knows who's going to win? We've still got a couple weeks to go, but it's, uh, it's kind of anybody's ball game. But what's kind of interesting, I think uh, maybe the pandemic or maybe it's simply the personalities around Trump that has everybody keeping a real close eye on this. You know, um, nobody's traveling right, too much right now. Uh, not enough sports on TV. Uh, everybody's watched Netflix to the nth degree, I guess, and, and they're thinking, okay, what's going on with the election? So it keeps people definitely more riveted and i'm getting a lot more questions about that and the election how about yourself andy are you getting a lot of questions well i think that people are uh you know everybody just keeps asking who do you think's going to win right right <laughs> and um so it, it i think that it's funny i think really the, the reality is is that it's just coming up quicker than than we can imagine and uh and we were joking the other night saying you know all these people that are voting early i wonder do you think they're voting for trump or do you think they're voting for biden and yeah. at the end of the day, we just threw our, our hats up and said, you know what, how, how do you know? It's just, it's impossible to tell. And especially after the last election, how, who would even want to try to predict? Exactly, exactly. And the polls were obviously quite a bit off on that last election. So, you know, at the end of the day, from the stock market perspective, it's actually really interesting. It doesn't matter a whole lot, <laughs> it turns out. And I, I've got this uh, going back to 1926, um, there's Hoover, Coolidge, actually before that, and Roosevelt, and post-secondary um, Second World War with Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and, and all the way to the current president. And it's, you know, I, I, unfortunately the listeners can't see this chart, but it basically goes up from low left to high right. It's, it's, it goes up. So there's a couple of ones that didn't do so well, depending on where the uh, recessions hit, and others did extremely well. But at the end of the day, going all the way back to 1934, the U.S. stock market has averaged 11.3%. And had you have put in $1,000 into the stock market back in 1934, well before most of our times were listening, I'm sure, you'd have about $8 million now. So it's incredible how resilient companies are. And you've got to remember, you're not buying necessarily 
the political side of things, you're buying companies. And they do have some impact on on what the tax rates will be on, and how much money will be left in the economy. That's where they have, you know, perhaps the spending of Americans and uh, maybe how much tax they tax the companies and how much tax money can be brought over from overseas, like that happened earlier on in Trump's era. But at the end of the day, companies are very nimble, and they will find ways to make money because that's their job. So if you had to guess, Scott, would you think the stock market performs better under a Democrat or a Republican? I'd say it's exactly the same. You'd say the same. Interesting. Well, funny enough, most people would suggest it's a Republican because they lower income taxes, let free, the free market do its thing. Um, from 1952 all the way to June 2020, the Democrats has had a rate of return of 10.6% while they've been in power. The Republicans had have 4.8%. And so it's literally been in half for having a Republican in office. Mm. So it's not... It's, and, and this is really interesting. The fact here is, is do not imply there's a cause, and an, a cause and effect. It totally could just be just a coincidence. Um, for example... You know, Reagan did a great job with, you know, increased lowering the taxes, but those tax benefits didn't help ha- happen until the following person got in, and they reaped those benefits. It's not like a, a turnkey where you make a change and immediately the economy does better. Quite often it takes a few years. So it's interesting going through each one, and the number one president during that period of time, all the way going back to oh, the post-World War, if you had to guess which president had the best stock market return, who would you guess? Uh, again, I think this has less to do with the person and more the time. So I'll, I'll say the 60s. Kennedy? Well, not, uh, not too. Uh, he wasn't there too long, of course. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, as it N- turned out, uh, was Bill Clinton. He had the highest return in office when he took over. And second to that, I'm not answering any more. I'm not answering any more questions then, Don. <laughs> right. You're fired. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and you know, at the end of the day, Scott. You're what are you right. asking me for when Andy is sitting right here? I know I'm sitting off <laughs> easy. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is I don't think too many people would have got those right without actually checking, checking and googling that quickly. Bull markets and bear markets come and go, and they have a lot more to do with the business cycles than they do with the presidents. And, so and you're right, now, the 80s would have been a more profitable decade than the 60s, correct? Which, which would have been, sorry? The 80s, 1980s would have been more profitable than the 1960s. Well, the 80s had a couple big problems in there. They had a massive um, high, high interest rates, and, and they had a recession in the early 80s, and then they had the big stock market bubble in uh, 1987. So I have to check, actually, Scott, but... You know what? I, I'm just going to close off my little square of this Zoom call, and I'm not saying anything more for the rest of the show. <laughs> but a quick synopsis of you. It looks like you are right. It looks like uh, you. it would have been slightly better during that time. But it's interesting. It has a lot more to do with the business cycles, and they come and go. So, you know, during the inception, you know, you look at the big winner here, and it was, it, it was with... Uh, uh, Clinton, who took over George H.W. Bush. And, again, he just kind of kept it going and did a great job. But if you actually go back all the way through to 1945, every single president had issues. 
there was no, you know, everything was easy for one particular president. They all had to go through things. And to be honest, when you're living through it, it's a lot harder. Right now we're living almost, it almost seems like even more so this time because we're in a pandemic. So we're watching the news a lot more carefully. So you are hearing a lot more. Uh, it just seems to be on top of mind. And, and again, Trump taking control of certainly a lot of the social media from, the day, from day one. He's added to this, too. And, you know, it's probably worked out well for him. But like Truman, he faced a recession and a bear market. But he did quite well. He, he was in two terms. In the first term, he did 35% if you're invested in the stock market. In the second term, he did 128%. And he also had to go through uh, one recession and two expansions. And so there was lots of things going on with him also. So followed up by... Dwight Eisenhower, well, he's a Republican. And he, his first term, he went up 111%. Second term was 43%. But again, they went through a lot of things. They, had, they went through the Korean War. And there's certainly some uh, Cold War tensions at that time. And at that time also, Soviet Union just acquired the hydrogen bomb. So there, it's, it was kind of the start of the Cold War. And so he had two economic expansions that he was credited with, but he also went through three recessions. And interesting enough, the debt to GDP, so the rate of how much debt towards the gross domestic product was 54%. I can tell you, it's like 130% now. But of course, interest rates started to go up during that time too. Kennedy, unfortunately, wasn't there a whole long. His term, which lasted from 1961 to 1963, he had the market was up 34.7%, but it had a really good start, and then it went down. It was a negative, and then it went back up again. And he just uh, he had a lot of interesting campaigns. He was actually very good at, I would say, marketing, and and to get America moving again was one of his campaigns. And the next one, a time for greatness, was the next campaign. Doesn't that sound pretty familiar to what we're going through right now? Kind of, yeah. It's very similar. And this is 1961 and 1963, coming up with a slogan that everybody can rally behind. But uh, he had a big fight with U.S. Steel, and the Wall Street really didn't like the way they were being dictated and trying to control some steel prices. And, of course, he got assassinated, and he was trying to make some big corporate tax cuts at the time. Well, Lyndon Johnson took over, another Democrat, in his first term, he had a 65% increase in the market, and the second term was 23%. But he actually swore in on Air Force One flying to Washington the day of the assassination. And he quickly passed JFK tax cuts and some of the civil white le um, legislation. And he also went through a bear market. And there was Vietnam protests, Vietnam War protests at that time. And so there was lots of stuff going on. And interesting enough, and we're going back to the 60s here, they called it the go-go era again because glamour stocks like IBM, Texas Instruments, Gulf Western, uh, Polaroid, and Xerox were leading the charge. Well, now we're just hearing different ones such as Apple and Facebook and, and, uh, and Google doing the same thing. So it's actually kind of interesting how history is repeating itself. And so... We, we then went into uh, Richard Nixon, and he had, a, he had a bit of a tumultuous time. And again, little to do with him. I know he got him impeached later, 
But again, he had a stagflation where there was high inflation rate and low economic growth. So at the end of the day, his returns were poor, but less to do with his policies than just happened to be the economic cycles. So after the break, I'll just quickly go through the other, the other uh, presidents. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can access old shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Also, don't forget, you can call and leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. We're talking about U.S. presidential election and, of course, how that may affect us here and especially the markets. Yes, and it's, it's just interesting when you go through you know, the more finer details of every election and all the different things they faced. And, of course, when you're living it day by day, you kind of get lost in the ups and downs of the stock market and i'm just just want to make sure listeners are looking at the longer term because at the end of the day it's the companies that you're you're investing in and not the president i know they have a bit of a say short term and 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 that's the volatility of the market and again it's kind of interesting again going to say nixon he took us off the gold standard where you had to have so much gold kind of in vaults at the time to back your dollar and that was a big deal back then and then there was that oil embargo that sent oil prices rocketing. I, I certainly remember traveling back then as a kid, and you know, you, gasoline lineups were huge. And, and if you lived in the States, you could only buy, depending on your license plate, you, there were certain days you could buy gas. So again, in the market, of course, went down at that, at that time. Then out comes President Ford after the impeachment. He wasn't in there very long, and really, he didn't, have a whole lot going on during his his tenure because he just basically took over from 74 to 77 and then out comes the peanut farmer jimmy carter and he uh during his time he was there for one term and at uh 55.5 percent return during his time uh, during his four-year stint and it was through uh that period of time 77 to 81 where we saw interest rates starting to really start to creep up. And you're starting to see inflation hitting double-digit levels, 10% inflation. So then you're also seeing what was going on was recession started to hit when interest rates were rising. We, we remember mortgage rates at 20%. And you can certainly buy Canada savings bonds way back there, 19.5%. And so that, that had a massive effect. Well, out comes Ronald Reagan to kind of sweep up that one. And he was from 1981 to 89. And during his time, he had 50% return in the first half and 98% in the second term. Amazing returns. At the end of the in in U.S. T-bills were paying 16% August of 1981. Right now, those same T-bills, you can't get a half a percent. Just to put it in perspective what interest rates have done. So certainly 
you know, there's uh, during his time, communism was starting to decline, and everybody was uh, quite happy. It was a bit of an exuberance at that stage. And then George W. Bush took over from there. He was a, a one-term president, and he did 72.7%. And, you know, he, he looked over a lot of things, the Iraq invasion of Kuwait, oil prices again skyrocketed. The economy slowed towards the end of his term, and there was a big real estate bust at that time. And, you know, we, we, we've gone through that up and down real estate prices, and we, we don't have to go that far back to 2008-2009, where, you know, homes throughout the U.S. were dropping because of all the mortgage or the bad mortgages there were. So then Clinton came in, and uh, he did extremely well. Basically, he was set up by what was going on beforehand. He really inherited an ideal economy. Inflation was falling, and he was able to get tax hikes through. And basically, he, he really took over from where George Bush left him. And it's interesting, even though one's a Democrat, one's a Republican, they simply just worked together in trying to help out the common good of helping the economy. He also, during George, um, Clinton's era, companies such as Google and Amazon started to take hold. And, of course, we all know what's happened to then. But Alan Greenspan, in 1996, said, you've got to be careful with a rational exuberance. That was that big speech he made. And basically, he was forecasting there was a bubble in the tech area. And that happened in 2000, where the NASDAQ, which is the tech stocks, took a huge beating because basically at the time, if you put .com behind your company, it went up. It didn't matter if there was any value to it. So then uh, George W. Bush came in, and he did not have a great term in terms of stock market returns, minus 6 in the first term and minus 25.8. But if you take a look, he also had two recessions during his term. So it wasn't the fact he was there as much as there was two recessions. And during a recession, of course, the economy is contracting and companies start to go down in value until the next upswing, which took place with Obama. And Obama's track record, he, in the first term he did 44%, in the second term he did 66%. And basically setting the stage for Trump, who basically took over and there was no extra big increase. And despite Trump's claim to the contrary, uh, he, he basically said that um, the stock market this, I, has done the best in history. That was not the case. Um, shocking. <laughs> it was really, he did a, he, you know, there's always been something to worry about. Uh, with, with Trump, there's been some, there was a recession because of the virus that's taken place. And also with China lockdowns um, in terms of the trade, he's also hurt things. So do presidents matter? Yes, they do matter. But at the end of the day, the markets are resilient. And interesting enough, when Eisenhower had a heart attack during a golf game, the market dropped 6% that day. When Kennedy got assassinated, the markets dropped 3% that day. But they rebounded. Because at the end of the day, you're not buying the president. You're buying the, you're buying the actual companies that represent some of the best companies in the world, and, there's, and they're what really hold up um, the funds in terms of real wealth in the world. So when you have all this wealth, what do you do with it? 
And this is where what things we do actually control are tax planning and estate planning. I know Andy has some, some interesting things to discuss about estate planning. Yeah, just to sort of change gears a little bit away from the CNN events of presidencies and elections, yes. etc. Um, it, uh, I had a client who called, and it's funny, we, um, it's amazing. Sometimes what we say, Don, actually sinks in, but somebody was calling from, uh, who had been <laughs> listening and said, uh, hey, you know, I know you guys always talk about the little tax and the big tax when it comes to your estate plan. And, of course, what we're talking about there is the probate tax, which tends to be such a focus. We really call that the little tax. And, uh, you know, to give you an idea, on a million-dollar estate, probate tax, about $14,500. But the big tax, which is the income tax, that's the amount of tax that your estate will pay in the final year as all of your income and investments, which are deemed to be cashed in, are now brought into your income for the final year and taxed. And so... It's a reminder that, um, you know, and that can be, you know, could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of the taxation that might you might have to pay as part of your final year in the estate. But um, so in terms of how an estate is taxed, there's a few things which are really taxed at a high rate. And that's going to be things like your RRSPs, your RIFs, uh, perhaps a locked-in retirement account. And um, and all of those items, whatever the market value is at the date of death, is basically income at the at the date of death uh, in the year of death, to the extent that you don't have a spouse to roll that over to. So um, things like pensions have no estate value at all because they simply die with you uh, at the time uh, of passing and stop. So RSPs, liras, rifts, they're 100 percent taxable. Every dollar is included in the income in that final year. The next category is things like your investments. So it might be investment, an investment property that you've got, a rental property. Maybe it's a vacation property, a cottage that you've got, or perhaps a non-registered portfolio uh, where you've got stocks or mutual funds. And those typically attract capital gains. So you've bought something for a certain price years ago. It's grown over the years. And if it's doubled, whatever that number is, you're going to pay tax on a capital gain, the increase in the value over time, and half of it is tax-free, and half of that growth is taxable. So in terms of capital gains on your investments, your vacation properties, another 50% of the growth on those investments are going to be added to your income in the year of death. Now, many of our clients also have uh, corporations. They're, um, uh, they are partnerships or they have... Uh, um, holding company with investments in it and so there are multiple layers of taxation in terms of dealing with your estate for the corporation but it could be as much as about 40 percent plus taxable depending on how the shares of the company are treated etc so there's a whole another layer of taxation associated with your corporation and the investments etc and the holdings within there and then finally, the fourth category, and this is this is the one we all like, is the tax-free category in terms yes. of your estate, <laughs> and that's going to include um, like your principal residence, right? There's no taxation on your principal residence, uh, your tax-free savings accounts, no taxation on the estate for that, and life insurance, an interesting category. Any life insurance as as of the date of death uh, will transfer to the estate and then through the beneficiaries without taxation as well. So. When you look at all of that, basically in our job, our role is to give you a snapshot of what does your estate look like today 
And what does it look like after tax? And we can then break out, this is the little tax, how much that's going to be, and here's the big tax, how much that's going to be. And so um, when it comes to planning for wills and your estate plan, one of the things that, um, that Don and I will continue to talk to clients about is something we call a testamentary trust. And the purpose of a testamentary trust is to continue to be able to do something we call income sprinkling. And... Um, We've talked about that before while people are alive, you know, in terms of splitting income and uh, and sprinkling income to various family members is a strategy that we try and consider while people are alive. But this can also be a strategy that you can consider after death. And so basically a testamentary trust is a trust that's set up in your will and then the trust is created upon your death, the death of an individual. Now, you can have multiple beneficiaries, can be named in the trust. It also offers creditor protection, and it also provides a layer of protection against marital breakdown. And the reason I bring that up is that, um, in fact, I recently had a a client call to say that her um, 90-year-old mother had sold her principal residence and was moving in with them at this stage. And the proceeds of the principal residence, she says, you know what, I want to... Uh, gift it to my three children. So it was roughly 600000 so it was going to be $200,000 each. No tax on the principal residence, so that was straightforward. That was one concern they had. Do we have to pay any tax on getting this 200000 each? But um, she said, the only concern I have is that if I need help later on, like I need to go into long-term care, I might need some of that money back. And so a bit of a red flag there as I'm thinking about it. But at the end of the day, when you think of the, the other point I made uh, was that when you gift that money to one of your children, if they subsequently get divorced, that money is going to be part of the Family Law Act in terms of a breakdown of marriage, and you could end up be seeing half of that go to an ex-son or daughter-in-law. And I think that's an, an issue that parents think about. It's, a, it's right up there at the top of the list in terms of priorities when it comes to their estate planning and gifting and thinking about transferring wealth to the next generation. So this is where a a testamentary trust can help uh, sort of insulate your your children from that and and hopefully add some peace of mind for yourself in terms of knowing that the money will stay through the lineage down through your grandchildren, etc. So if we take a quick example of what happens when somebody without a testamentary trust, let's say we've got a couple, uh, A and B, uh, they're married and they both pass away. And in their will, they decided to leave 50% to one child and 50% to the other child, two children. And, but uh, the one child who was married ends up getting divorced. And so to the extent that, you know, you think about when people get an inheritance, what's the first thing they tend to do with that money? They think about paying off a mortgage, yeah. right? So if you're a young couple or a couple that still has debt, you're going to say, well, boy, we can use that, you know, 200000 or whatever that amount is, and we can pay off our debt. Well, once you've sort of commingled that money into your household assets, then it now becomes subject to uh, division upon marriage breakdown. So in this situation, you know, the money went 50-50 to each of the children. The one child put it in to pay off their mortgage, and then they subsequently got divorced. So now basically a quarter of your estate ends up going to an ex-spouse. And so 
what we're going to look at then is how do we use a testamentary trust to avoid that and kind of running through what a scenario might look like. So if you, I'm going to use some real numbers here, and I know we're going to come up to the, our commercial in a second, so hang on and we'll come back and talk about it a little more. But essentially, if you've got a $1 million estate and you decide to leave that million dollars to your daughter, and uh, you can have a choice, you can leave it directly to her, the million bucks, or you can leave that million dollars to her through the creation of a trust in your will, a testamentary trust. And then what I'm going to do is just sort of compare how much tax is going to be paid under that strategy, each of those strategies, and some of the flexibility you have to do things like income sprinkling that we talked about earlier. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com as well. You can call now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're talking about testamentary trusts. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I was just talking about an example where, you know, as an estate, you have a million dollars. And you have, uh, we're sort of comparing two options. Option one is simply leaving that million dollars directly to your daughter. And the second option is you leave that money to in trust for your daughter. And so let's just take through a couple of scenarios. And I'm going to assume, you know, we make, make some assumptions. But let's assume that the, the daughter in this case is doing well financially. She has a good job and in a higher income bracket. And so if you had a million dollars and the daughter now invests that capital, now we're not going to get into the discussion about, you know, should she pay off their matrimonial home, their mortgage, or do anything like that, which we know has problems and issues, but she decides to keep this in her own name. And um, it earns 5% and $50,000 a year. And so when that $50,000 a year, she gets a T4 or a T5 or a T3 slip, uh, sorry, T3 slip or a T5 slip for that, and she has to pay tax on it. It gets added to her income. So if that pushes her into one of the higher tax brackets, and you know, over 150000 she's going to be paying roughly about 46% tax. So that's $23,000 that she would pay on $50,000 of income. So after it's all said and done, she makes about $27,000 each year. And so now if we compare that to having set up a trust through the will, in this case now the million dollars is left for the daughter in trust. And uh, when that 5% is earned by the investments inside the trust, the trust can also sprinkle money to their daughter's two children the two grandchildren in this case. And so now the $50,000 gets flowed through to grandchild one and grandchild two. And they each get $25,000 of income. And the benefit of that is that both grandchildren are in a low income bracket. 
And the amount of tax that they're going to pay is only going to be around 14%. So they're going to pay $3,200 each, so a total of $6,200 of total tax. So that compare that to $23,000 of tax that she would pay if she had this income by herself. And so basically at the end of each year, uh, you can, you're either going to pay um, $27,000 uh, in tax, you could, oh, so you're going to net $27,000 versus $43,600 after tax by using the testamentary trust, which works out to a $16,600 in tax savings each year that you can structure it this way. Now, there may be a point at which the grandchildren start to earn more income and that doesn't make as much sense or the, the tax savings are reduced. But, um, you know, really the opportunity to reduce the amount of tax you pay by using a testamentary trust and sprinkling the income amongst the trust beneficiaries based on their tax bracket is a fantastic strategy. And so um, now a testamentary trust, it does require a little more additional work in terms of your will or a little more complexity with respect to your will. And so up front, you're going to pay a little more cost to have your will prepared. It might be an extra $1,000 um, to have that put into your will. And in addition, uh, the trust will have to file a tax return each year, a T3 tax return. So there is some additional cost in terms of tax filing. Um, you could do it on your own and not pay anything, but, you know, usually we don't recommend that. But, uh, uh, you know, so you might pay an extra 100 150 bucks a year to have the T3 tax return done. But, you know, again, at the end of the day, what um, this planning allows for, and we talked about this earlier, is it also protects the daughter from any future husband or their existing husband if their marriage breaks down. Because that money held in trust has specifics around who are the beneficiaries and how that money is going to be um, distributed. And so it could actually actually insulate the daughter from the pressures of in a relationship of saying, hey, wait a minute, you've got a million dollars sitting there. Uh, what are we going to do with that? That could be, you know, our vacation property. That could be, you know, we could stop working now. You know, there's all kinds of things that you could consider. And so um, the trust puts a layer in between the spouses that uh, allows them to to not create any blame. The person who's going to get blamed is the dead person, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're going to be mad at anybody, you can be mad at the deceased. Yeah, they, they're the bad person, and, and the daughter, she's saying, hey, it's not my fault. This is the way it was set up. Exactly. And um, so the one other concept that I wanted to talk about with respect to uh, estate planning is where we actually use life insurance. I know everybody likes to talk about insurance, and we always get our little hairs on the back of our neck go up when we start talking about insurance. Um, so this is a concept that we call an estate bond. And in the, in the context of using insurance for your estate plan, it's really about saying, you know what, Don and I, we've checked the boxes. We've made sure that you are set in terms of your retirement plans. And now we're looking at your situation where you're actually wanting to look at creating an estate and how to do that cost effectively in the sense that you've already looked after your own retirement, but there's money available to be able to now do some planning with and think about how do I transfer wealth to the next generation and do that tax efficiently. So we'll talk about that when we come back. 
We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're talking about a state bond. What is that? An estate bond, as I mentioned, so in a situation where as a client, and we'll use a quick case study, let's say John and Jane, and we know that we've completed their sort of their retirement assessment. And uh, so Don and I, you know, we know that they have sufficient assets to meet their long-term financial objectives for retirement. But one of their objectives was to ensure that they leave an estate for their children and their grandchildren, and maybe how to do that the most tax-effective way possible. So Based on our our retirement assessment, we know the clients have funds available to be able to set aside, and we consider, uh, suggest allocating $10,000 a year towards their goal of of creating uh, an estate, and we're going to look at using permanent insurance to create this, what we call an estate bond. And so, in that concept, the the State bond is basically using 100% tax-sheltered, and the reason I'm saying that is that if you remember what I mentioned, that life insurance is one of those tax-free items that transfers through your estate. We want to reduce the overall risk of the investment portfolio because investment in a, into a permanent insurance policy is actually considered a fixed-income asset class, which has a lower risk associated with it. And, of course, John and Jane can also access cash value built up to the, in the policy if required. And again, it provides this sort of guaranteed tax-free estate value to beneficiaries. So based on their age and life expectancies, we're going to allocate that $10,000 annually to an estate bond insurance policy over the next 20 years, and assuming they're starting this at, say, age 55. And um, so as they put in that $10,000 a year, that's $200,000, and then they stop, they make no further investments. And what we look at is the dividend scale, which is the amount of interest that a policy is going to earn and grow on a tax-sheltered basis. We can get a projection, and there are guarantees associated with that. But basically, at age 85, assuming that uh, John and Jane pass away at that point, the estate benefit is worth about $571,000 from the $200,000 investment, and it's paid out 100% tax-free. Now, they were in pretty high tax bracket. They were earning good income. And what we've realized is that the after-tax return, they would have had to have earned 10% per year on an alternative investment to be able to create that same amount of after-tax wealth through their estate, 10% a year. So we know we can't earn that pretty much on any type of investment these days. So clearly um, the the value of having tax-free income flow through the estate is very powerful. Uh, and so we do a projection to see what that rate of return might be, um, and the insurance companies will provide you a, an estimate or an enforced policy projection to show you what the value would be. And in this case, as I said, at age 85, it's 571. If they die at 90, it was 660,000. If they die at 95, it's 761,000. And even at that stage, you still have to earn about 9.3% on a non-registered investment to make the same rate of return after tax. Um, 
So I think that the estate bond is something where you have to be uh, medically capable uh, to, it's under, it has to be underwritten by the insurance company. So you have to be medically sound to be able to qualify to get the insurance. But it's something that I just don't want people to sort of automatically think insurance, I'm not, it's a bad word. I don't want to think about insurance as a solution to my estate plan. But at the same time, it can be a very powerful tool. So I know we've got a few minutes left, and Don, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that or um, set us up for our, our next topic for next week. <laughs> no, you know what? Uh, the, ne- the best thing about financial planning is you have to work on the things you can control. And as we talked, as I talked earlier, we're going over the presidential election, and it seems to be topical. Things are People are looking at that all the time, and what should I do as far as investments, and how is this going to affect my investments? At the end of the day, it doesn't affect it that much, so just... Stay the course, stay invested, and, and keep to the plan. The plan really are those is the real planning is in the tax planning, the in estate planning. How do we save? In Andy's case, there he saves sixteen thousand dollars in that scenario per year. Well, if those kids say that that affects for ten years, that's one hundred and sixty thousand dollars of tax savings by simply using a testamentary trust. So, using an estate plan can save a lot of money. Again, this is where you go to your financial planner. You go through exactly what's the tax planning, how does this affect it, um, does the testamentary make, uh, trust make sense. And, and again, it puts the onus on, you know, in this case it was the father that died. Well, then you're not the bad guy. Those social pressures of a marriage saying, well, you've got a million bucks in the bank, why aren't you putting it in my TFSA? Why aren't we paying off the mortgage? Those don't exist. And the nice thing with a good estate plan this doesn't matter. The person that set this up is no longer alive, and he can be blamed. And meanwhile, your, your marriage is a lot less rocky because you're doing the things that the person who had the money in the first place really wanted to be done. And remember, we keep talking about the small tax and the big tax, and, uh, but one of the things that I think is a powerful tool is that Don and I can show you what is the value of your estate after all of that big tax is paid and the little tax and we call that estate shrinkage. So, and I think people are fascinated to find out what is the actual value after taxes of my estate and how much shrinkage is happening in terms of what I think we're worth versus what we actually have available to flow through to our beneficiaries. What's my shrinkage? That is the takeaway line from uh, the show today, I think. All right, we have been... Your estate shrinkage. That, yeah, that's a, I said that, didn't I? Didn't I say that? I'm sorry. Editing, uh, we have been planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well access old archive shows. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great week. Take care. Thank you, Thanks, Scott. Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.